Uh, this morning, we are continuing to walk through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're getting close to the end. And uh, by this point in the book, what we find is it gets really repetitive. Um, he is intentionally being repetitive, and I don't think, uh, despite the fact that it's a preacher preaching it, I think he meant it to be like one message, and we are just going through week after week. So we've got this week, next week, and the week after, are, and then we're done with Ecclesiastes. And so we're winding our way. He's re- repeating himself, but the spiral is getting tighter. And as he's repeating, he's trying to draw us in, I think, to a specific kind of a conclusion. So we're going to be this morning picking up where we left off last week, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. We're going to go uh, through that and then all the way through the end of chapter 10 this morning as we get close to the end. I want to start us this morning as we look at it um, back in 1930. And in 1930, there was a, a painter named Elias Garcia Martinez that painted a, um, a painting of Jesus on a wall in the church, a fresco, where it's painted directly onto the plaster in this old church building. And, um, and so this is the, the painting of Jesus. It's called the Ecce Homo. It's a um, Latin term that means behold the man, a quote from the Gospels. And so you're, you're um, you know, seeing Jesus as he's being ready to be crucified. He's got the crown of thorns and um, this lovely painting. Now you can see already in this old photo that the, the painting was beginning to kind of deteriorate a little bit, right? And then here, uh, more recently, is kind of how this goes. Now, you see this, and you're like, oh, how sad that this is happening to the painting. But this, as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, is exactly what he tells us to expect. This is what life is like. Paint something beautiful, uh, paint a picture of Jesus, and the whole thing is going to begin to crumble and fall apart, right? Don't put your hope in it, because it's going to crumble and fall apart. And in fact, this was too much for this one little lady that was part of the church, um, an 80-year-old woman named Cecilia Jimenez. And so she decided, she's a painter, she decided... I just cannot let the painting of Jesus um, sit and deteriorate like that. And so she came into the church with her paints and took matters in her own hands, using all of her gifts and all the love in her heart, and she restored the painting. Um, And she did a phenomenal job of getting, like, all the cracks and everything filled in, but the end result... It's a little rough, a little rough. And so the, the painting is called Eke Homo, Behold the Man. Uh, some people are calling this the Eke Mono, which means Behold the Monkey. Um, I can kind of see it, a little irreverent, but um, a little, a little, uh, a little gibbonous, I suppose you might say, in its features at the end. The reason I'm pulling this in is because I see, I picture uh, Ecclesiastes, and he's telling us life looks like that painting on the left, right? Where it just, you know, we, we can see like what's happening, and we can see the good things, and we're like Jesus is even represented, but, but life just kind of uh, taints it all, right? And kind of just pulls it all down and causes it to crack and, and, and to chip and, and to, to like lose its colors. And uh, what we do is what this sweet 80-year-old woman does is we're like, I can't handle life in its brokenness. And so let's cover it all in. Let's get paint to cover the entire thing and then everything's going to be fine. But I think what we find is actually you lose something in doing that, right? It's all sugar-coated. It's all covered in paint. It's all fine, right? But you lose something. I would just, I would argue the painting on the left is inherently better than the painting on the right, right? Even though the one on the right is crisp and clean and everything's covered, there's something you lose. And, and so as we continue to follow the, um, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, as he kind of leads us away from all of our faith and all the wrong things in life, um, we're going to keep referring back to this idea of coming into life and just doing what we need to do to cover up the cracks and the fissures. So we're going to look at a few different ways of covering it up. You're going to notice these are repetitive to what we've seen before, um, but he's intentionally trying to get us to repeat and to dig in and to continue to open ourselves up to look at what's going on. 
So the first type of cover-up that we try to do to cover up the paint and all that kind of thing um, comes in the form of like a self-help cover-up. And I'm going to look at a few of the verses here to kind of see how that plays out. But in chapter 9, verse 11, we'll read a couple of verses here. He says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So here, he's, um, he's back to his observations. We've been tracking him. He's gone on all these quests for different things. Now he's giving us what, what I'm calling deconstructed Proverbs, where he's giving us proverbial wisdom, speaking like this is wisdom, but, he, but they're deconstructed. And he's showing us that life is still broken, and these things make sense, and then they also kind of don't. Um, and he's wrestling with it. Here he's giving us his observations. So he's saying, I saw under the sun. He's looking, he's seeing, he's observing, and this is what he's finding when he looks at life, is that there's wisdom, and wisdom is a good thing, but wisdom, like, it continues, like, my observations continue to kind of fight against the wisdom that I've received, and everything's not fitting together. He hasn't come to peace with it all the way. And, and so it's like he's looking at the picture, right? And the picture is chapped, or, uh, 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 chipped and cracked, and he's um, and faded, so he's trying to kind of cover it up, and he says, the ways that we kind of do this, I think, um, don't end up working out because he's looking and he's saying, look, the, the race doesn't go to the, the fastest person, right, or the strongest person, right? The, the uh, wisdom, knowledge, bread, that doesn't always come to the wisest person. Um, it doesn't work like that in life. But we try to make it work like that. We try in life to make everything work. If you're just smart enough, fast enough, strong enough, then everything will work, okay? So, so think of like any version of self-help that you can. If, if, you're, if your life is not the way that you want it to be, um, you've got to try this diet. You've got to try this workout regimen. And if you do, you get your life back. You get your body back. You get your respect back. Um, if, if, life is, uh, if, if your life is kind of uh, floundering, you need to be more assertive in life, right? Tell people what you want and what you need and, and become like more um, emotionally, socially intelligent and then you can get your life back, right? Or there's, you know, more education that you need or something. There's all these people, uh, an infinite number of books and an infinite number of people that are willing to tell you, just do this and you get your life back in the way that you want. And the preacher is here to say, that is not how it works. I, I, I understand the concept, I think he would say. I understand the concept, but I'm telling you that I look around and the race isn't always won by the fastest person or the strongest person. And, and he's just saying it's, it's not how things work out. Now, this is really countercultural for us because all of our like, favorite movies and, and plots are all about this. So like, think of the, the Rudy. Uh, Rudy was like this football player, and he wasn't the most talented, but he worked harder than anyone else. And through his hard work, he was able to get on the football field at the very end and sack somebody. I, if you haven't seen it by now, I'm not worried about giving you a spoiler. Um, the, the movie Home Alone, uh, my girls have already started watching again for the Christmas season. And in the movie Home Alone, uh, you know, he's, he's young and, and disadvantaged, and yet he's clever and persistent, and he's got a, a lot of heart, and so he defeats the, the wet bandits and then the sticky bandits later. Um, every Marvel movie on some level is about someone that either has a lot of strength and passion or a lot of, uh, a lot of heart, and they end up getting the things they want. And the preacher's like, cute movies, it doesn't fit what I see in the world around me. That there's people that are the hardest workers, uh, the most diligent, the wisest, the people that are digging in the most, and these people are, uh, time and chance happen to all of them, right? That we 
all are just prone. And he uses the example of a fishing net. And he's just saying, like, look, uh, just like a fish swimming around, what makes one fish get caught and another one not, right? It's not like you always, when you go fishing, it's not like you always catch the dumb fish or the weak fish or the blind fish, right? You just, you just catch whatever fish happens to swim into that net. And he's saying, like, you know, Life is like that for us. There's fishing nets all around, and, and we're kind of blind to them in, in whatever way. We're just kind of blind to them, and we just, you, sometimes you end up in a net. And some of you are like, yeah, I have been swimming into a lot of nets this year in the last few years, and life is just broken. And, and rather than, you know, can, you can picture like a, uh, a school of fish taking like a uh, net avoidance class or something like that. Here's how you avoid the thing. It's like, now nah, the preacher's like, now nah, you're just going to swim into what you swim into, and it's just going to be what it's going to be. And so he's trying to get us away from this help, self-help thing of like uh, the promises, the guarantees that we give. Of if, you, if you would just do this and get your mental, spiritual, physical life on track, everything would work out. And he's saying there are no guarantees for any of us. Now he's going to give us a story of this same concept here in verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. The whole thing is so great. He's like almost, like almost in the mode of giving us a good proverb here, a great story of like the, the, the town was in trouble, but there was a poor man, but that man was wise, and through his wisdom, he delivered the city. Man, what a, what a great tale. What a good Disney movie that would make. It would be amazing, but he's like, but then nobody remembered that man, right? It, it, it didn't ultimately matter in the end. So he's, he's showing there's power in wisdom. It did deliver the city, but there's limits to wisdom because, like, man, it still didn't work out to his benefit, right? He still doesn't get the acclaim that he deserves. He doesn't get the, the promotion or whatever, and he's just coming again and again up against this whole reality that, man, we do our best to live our lives, and um, there's no way to ensure that everything's going to be good for us. So, this is one of the ways I think we try to cover up the broken, uh, shattered painting of life is self-help. We can do it. We can make life better. And he's just saying, no, not so much. Now, he's going to give us a reminder. And this is coming from the end of chapter 6 and a little bit into, or, sorry, the end of chapter 9 and a little bit into chapter 10 here. And this is how he says it. I say to you that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. Uh, so again, let me pause right there in the middle of a sentence. Very positive towards wisdom. Wisdom is a good thing. Wisdom is, gonna, wisdom is better. So he's saying this. He's not observing. He's saying it. I'm telling you that wisdom is good. But now watch what he says at the end of verse, 17, or verse 18 there. But one sinner destroys much good. It doesn't take much uh, to destroy wisdom. Uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. And I, I'm going to pause there too. I know what a lot of you are thinking. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, a fool's heart to the left. This is not in direct reference to American politics, okay? <clears throat> Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. 
So here he is, I mean, giving this wise advice, but he just can't help himself. He says, look, I mean, wisdom is great, but it's fragile. Like, it really is a fragile thing because all it takes is one foolish person to destroy a lot of good, right? Or, or think of the, this jar of ointment. You've got this expensive, good, important ointment, and all it takes is one fly to just fall in there and die, and the whole thing gets, like, ruined um, by this. And so he's just saying, wisdom's great. It's, it's, it's like, better than, than not, even if no one is, like, listening to it. Um, and yet, he's saying... There's this tension here because it's fragile and it can all be destroyed really easily. I've got, I've got two girls, so I've got the girl dad thing down pretty good for now, uh, although my oldest just turned 13, so I think the game is changing on me. But we, we, uh, we go and do a lot of things. We got this um, aerobi Frisbee a number of years ago where it's like a Frisbee, but it just, it'll go for like 100 yards. It's amazing. So we would like, one girl would be at soccer and the other, we'd be just throwing it around at the school, this Frisbee, just like an hour of like a blast of just throwing this Frisbee. And then, all of a sudden, little boy comes walking up. And we're not terrible people, so he's like, oh, can I play? Of course you can play. Throw in the frisbee. First throw, that boy throws it as hard as he possibly can, and he goes onto the roof of the school, you know? And I just, I just feel like, you know, yeah, there's a different skill set that's required to be a boy dad, I think. Um, I was a boy once. I, I am, I'm pro-boy, obviously. But, I, um, but it's just like, oh, wow, that, that's like hours of fun with this crew. And then all of a sudden, just one person changes the whole thing up. I feel like I'm, I'm a little harsh towards boys right now, but I... God gave me girls. I don't, I don't mean to, uh, anyway. It doesn't, wisdom is so fragile. It doesn't take much uh, to undo the whole, the whole thing. Um, and, and he's just saying like, man, like love wisdom, grab for wisdom, live by wisdom, but just recognize that it's fragile and it doesn't take much. It can come falling down. I, I think you know, wisdom being fragile, it makes me think also how like theology itself can be actually pretty, pretty fragile at times. So our theology, we live in this American world where, yeah, like, we, like the world's kind of broken and we want to do everything we can to feel great about our faith. And so we want certainty and we want um, tight answers to things and we want loose ends wrapped up. And um, in doing that, though, I think often our, our theology in pursuing certainty and in avoiding some of the harder questions, um, we create actually somewhat of a fragile theology. And I'm going to read you a little thing from John Piper. Um, I really respect a lot of his things. And he, and he has this book called Spectacular Sins and Their Global Purpose in the Plan of God or, or something like that. Um, but his whole thing is he's, he's writing because he thinks we have a weak, fragile theology and we need a stronger one. So this is how he says it at the intro to this book. I, I'm writing this book because I think the days are coming uh, that will demand from the followers of Christ a change in the way that we look at the world. It seems to me that Christians in the West are being coddled. We suffer little in the name of Christ. Therefore, we read the Bible not with the desperate hunger for evidence of God's triumph and pain, but with a view to improving our private pleasures. Therefore, we read the Bible selectively. We pick a text here and there to fit our felt needs. This is like a doctor who forgets how to write prescriptions for the best antibiotics because everybody seems healthy, and he spent the last decades tweaking good health with hip-hop exercise videos, unaware that pestilence is at the door. And probably like me, you're thinking, what could John Piper possibly know about hip-hop exercise videos? There's a, there's a story there that we need to hear. Um, it's like the soldier who forgets how to use his weapons because the times seem peaceful, and he spent the last decades doing relief work and teaching the children how to play games. Christians in the West are weakened by wimpy worldviews, and wimpy worldviews make wimpy Christians. God is weightless in our lives. Coddled people will not be good listeners when their world collapses. They will be numb with confusion and rage at the God who wasn't supposed to allow this. Now, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what your theology is like, but I feel like, in general, 
uh, we've, we've gone so hard after the sugar-coated version of things and the comfortable version of things, and we shun so much away from hard questions and the acknowledgement of things like, I have doubts of my faith, or sometimes God doesn't answer my prayers, right? Or sometimes when I pray over and over again and God doesn't answer my prayers, I find myself feeling angry with God. And we want to cover that up all up with paint so that everything looks fine and feels fine. Um, but I think that what that does in our, in our effort to be certain, in our effort to not let any cracks show, I think sometimes we create a thing that's actually more fragile um, than it should be. And, and I love John Piper's sentiment there of like, Let's beef up our theology. Let's, let's have a theology that acknowledges that sometimes life is a little bit cracked, right? And so you can, you can look at this um, painting again. I'm going to show it to you because I just, I love it so much. And I, um, I, we, we were like in tears crying as I was showing my daughters this, this whole thing. There's a Halloween costume, by the way. Someone made a Halloween costume of the, the monkey Jesus on the right. Incredible. But I think, you know, the, the, the world points at that picture on the right, and they're just like, that's not very appealing, right? And we should be able to say, you're right, that's not very appealing. It's covered in paint, it's all done up, but like, uh, there's something more appealing about the one on the left, where it's, it's jagged, and it's broken, and it's chipped, and we know that's really not exactly what it's supposed to look like, but there's something way more appealing about that broken, uh, faded, chipped, cracked version of the thing, because it's, it's real. It's real life. And in our effort to cover things over, man, we just make something that's not so appealing um, to the world around us or even to ourselves. And I think that's where the fragility comes from. So he's telling us wisdom, wisdom is fragile. Um, and, and so like, be careful. It's good, but don't put all of your trust in it. He's told us not to go down the self-help route. Now he's going to talk, talk to us about um, what I call hustle culture, where if we just try harder and do good enough and really throw ourselves into it, everything will work out fine. He's got words to say about that. So here he says in um, chapter 10, verse 4, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There's an evil eye of seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. So I think there's this like fatalism to what he's saying of like this whole idea of, man, if the, if the people in charge are angry, just like all you can do is just kind of be quiet and, and handle it, right? We're, we're prone to like march and protest or like run for district school board or something when the world around us breaks and let's fix it, let's hustle, let's work hard. But he's just like, yeah, I look around me and it's like, man, the people in charge are in charge and people that should be in charge that like have worked hard and maybe have the, the credentials, like those people are walking on the ground and, and, and the other people are like up on top and he's just seeing there's no correlation between a person's status or their effort or the, the work they put in or their qualifications and what we actually see. There's no guarantees to life on this side of the garden. And so we're going to read a few more verses here, starting in verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite through him who breaks through a wall. And I'm just going to tell you right now, I cannot read that line, he who breaks through a wall, and not think of the Kool-Aid guy um, coming through a wall. Some of you were born in the 80s, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Others of you, you don't worry about it. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. So weird parables or, or, or uh, proverbs here, and I think he's giving these deconstructed proverbs, but he's just talking about how, like, whatever you do, the effort you expend, the hustle culture you put in, like, I'm going to do this so that I can achieve something. He's just saying, yeah, sure, like, break through a wall and you're going to get bit. I think the idea is like a, 
a wall at the time would be like rocks and maybe some plaster. And if there's gaps in there, then maybe there's a snake hiding. He's, he, the whole thing is like, dig a pit, you're going to fall into it. Like, um, work, and if your axe is blunt, you're going you're gonna to hurt yourself. It like feels to me like this was written by an insurance agent, actually, you know? Like, whatever you do, it's going to get you hurt. And, um, and I just think this whole thing, put in whatever you want, and, and it's still, life is going to fall back on you. Now, um, there's different ways of like approaching this, but I'll, I'll, I'll pick on um, someone that I think is really great in a lot of ways. Um, Dave Ramsey has this line. He's, he's like helped so many people get out of debt and live financially responsible. But he has this line, um, if you live like no one else now, you'll live like no one else later. Okay, and the idea is save your money, right? Be wise, get yourself out of debt so that you can retire and you'll have money, whereas everyone else is just spending all their money now and they won't have it. So great idea. Save your money, definitely, right? But, but this whole thing of like, live like no one now, so you live like, like the, the preacher's like, uh, I'd like to have a word about that, please, because that's not always how it works out, and you shouldn't be putting your faith in money. And I'm not saying Dave Ramsey does. I'm just saying there's this belief that we have that if we just do things right now, it's all going to work out in the end. We like to live like with a promise, with a guarantee, with like a formula that if I do this the right way, it's all going to work out. And life just doesn't work according to formulas and guarantees. It really doesn't. I was talking to Allison Stevenson, who's a member of our congregation. She's part of the uh, follow class we're doing right now. So part of our membership process is, um, is going through this follow study, and the elders are leading that. And Mark Gowdy, one of our elders, he was telling me, he's like, Look, I don't know how things went in the main service, but what we did back in that follow class was way better. And I was like, first, rude, you know. And, uh, and second, that's amazing because what they did is they just asked, they were talking through our values, and the value was that we're shaped by the gospel and everything. And as they did, they just said, how, like, when did you first encounter the gospel? And, and as Allison was telling me all this, she said she was struck by the fact that everybody came to encounter the gospel and believe in Jesus in a totally different way, okay? So there's people in there that, like, like were watching a TV preacher and came to know the faith, which, like, I didn't even think was possible, you know? It's amazing. Um, there's people that, like, got a gospel tract, and that's how they responded. There's people that, through a long-time relationship, God brought them to the faith. And there's all these, like, weird, quirky ways, but she's like, everybody. It was totally different. And, and I can tell you one thing that pastors and churches are really good at is writing a formula for how you best lead people to faith in Christ, you know? You do it through door-to-door evangelism, and you go and you pray for people. Or you do it through long time building of relationships with people and that's how, and, and just like the reality though is that there's no formula and God just reaches people wherever they're at, right? This world is weird and we're all weird and diverse. And so God meets us in all of these different places. Um, R.C. Sproul, he's this, uh, this uh, pastor that, that died not too long ago, but like really influential preacher and everything, theologian, deep thinker. And the way he was led to Christ, actually, if you look ahead in Ecclesiastes 11.3, it says, if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. And he says, I read that verse and I knew I had to give my life to Jesus. And I'm like, how? <laughs> like, how? Right? So there, there's the power of the word of God, even in places where it's like, wow, I, I, I don't see the connection. But that's, so the whole thing that we do of trying to get certainty and formulas and guarantees I think what he's saying is like, hey, embrace wisdom. It's great, but don't treat it like your savior. Um, don't, don't think that we can just work hard enough and everything. That, that whole idea of work harder and you accomplished it is in many ways, I think, just a way of kind of covering up the, the broken, chipped, cracked version of our faith. Um, and, and instead, I think we're being invited into something where we just trust that God's working. So another, another version of this, um, the pundit cover-up. We cover up the cracks in our faith by listening to these pundits that speak. So starting in verse 12, 
The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginnings of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no one knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. So in all of this, I mean, the, even that last verse, like the, the toil of a fool wearies him. He doesn't know the way to the city. Back then, there were not that many cities. So if you don't know the way to the city, like that's pretty bad. And what he's saying is like, how can you tell which person is the fool? He's like, do this. Listen for the sound of flapping gums, and you're going to find that leads you to a fool. Who's the person that's talking the most in any given setting? That's how you know the foolish person. And this is really countercultural because I feel like today what we do is like, who's the one that can explain everything to me? And that's the one I want to listen to. So let's get that person on the news, right? Let's have that person pastor our church. Let's, let's, I'm going to listen to that person's podcast because they're there and they've got the opinions, man. They know how it works. They can predict the trends and they can explain everything that's happening. And so we go to the people that are so confident in what they know and how they can explain what's happening and we listen to them and, and the preacher's just saying like, you know how you can tell a fool? The person that is just always talking, always explaining, the person that knows everything because look at what he says uh, in verse 14, a fool multiplies words though no one, no man knows what is to be and who can tell him what will be after him? The, the whole point is like, okay, yeah, go ahead, explain it all. You, you can get rich that way, you can get famous that way, but there's a bankruptcy to it. There's a foolishness to it because we don't know what's going to happen. And so we cover up, I think, cover up the brokenness in our world by finding people that are willing to explain to us what's happening. We want to understand, and we're willing to look to these people to explain it to us. And I'd say the alternative is, um, I was reading John 10, and John 10 is all about Jesus saying, I'm the good shepherd, and my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, right? They recognize the voice of the shepherd. So rather than, okay, who can explain it to me? Just anchoring ourselves in the Lord and just saying, he's my shepherd. I'm, I'm going to know and recognize his voice when he's speaking to me. I'm just going to listen to him and find the ways that he leads me in. Um, a much simpler, uh, more beautiful approach, I think. Um, and again, there's a lot of wise people out there. It's, it's fantastic, right? But he's keeping us from putting our faith in these things. All right, now he's going to give us another reminder. Um, and this reminder is, I think, don't despise wisdom. Wisdom has value. So here's what he says. Woe to you, O land, when, you're, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your prince's feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. I, I think he's saying legitimately it's better for you as a country if your leaders are wise and, and prudent and, and self-controlled. Uh, verse 18, through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. Yep, I agree with that. Don't be lazy, right? Um, you, you watch everything crumble around you if you're lazy. Now he's going to begin to subvert a little bit in verses 19 and 20. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life. I like those. And money answers everything. So now look here. Money now answers everything. So he's already gone on a quest where he found, maybe I'll find meaning in life through money and wealth and exploring all these things. And he found, ah, actually, I have all the money that I could ever ask for, and it's not satisfying me. Here he's coming back and giving us wisdom, but saying, yeah, money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, verse 20, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. I think he's being a little ironic because he's saying, look, all you need is money, and it's going to solve every problem that you have. Um, what you need to make sure you don't do is if you have a powerful, strong, famous, wealthy friend, make sure you don't say anything bad to them to destroy the relationship because you're going to need them to get out of things. I think he's just continually saying, like, man, wisdom is great, but, like, man, at the end of the day, like, 
just be rich and you'll be fine, except that really you won't, you know. And he's just really, um, I think, deconstructed in the way he's presenting these things to us. So what do we do with this? Like, what, what, like I think if we end the sermon here, and this is where we're going to stop in Ecclesiastes this morning, if we end the sermon here, I think legitimately what the preacher would want is for us to all go home and be kind of depressed. I think that's really what he's trying to do, okay? So we could do that. We could do that. Um, but, but I want to I wanna like frame it because I think where he's trying to lead us, and again, we're going to see um, one more week where he's going through these deconstructed Proverbs, and then we get to the conclusion of the whole book. Um, I think that what he's pulling us into, inviting us into, is just, again, release, release, release all these things that we're holding so tightly in that we think this might do it, right? You know, I, I've, lived, I've lived 40 years, and, and everything's kind of a mess, but by golly, if I just do this, if I read that book now, everything's going to work. If I just try hard in this area, everything will fit. He's trying to get us to just say, let go of it, recognize there's a lot of good things out there. None of them are going to do it. Um, what do we do instead? When we come into a world where everything is broken and cracked and, and flawed, is it our job to, to fill in the gaps and to fill it in, cover the whole thing with paint, make sure it looks crisp and new and, and uh, not flawed and not broken and not like missing anything? Um, it's not our job to do that. Instead, what I think he's trying to get us into is this process of living whereby we, we recognize that everything's flawed. We, we acknowledge and we're honest with ourselves and with everyone else that, man, my life's broken, my, like my faith is broken, my church is broken, right? Uh, there's, there, like everything has problems to it, but in the suffering and in the struggle of that, there's actually a lot of life to be found. It's, it's less about the destination in many cases, and it's a lot more about the journey on the way there. And, and what makes me say that, I want to um, read to you a couple of verses here. Um, this is in Romans 5. Paul uh, saying, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is amazing, right? If we want to grow as a human being, you know, if you're just saying, hey, like, I want to just be a, a better person. <laughs> like, I want to be more of who God's made me to be. Um, he's saying, okay, that's great. Buckle up. You're going to have to look at the sufferings that are around you in your life, and you're going to have to see, okay, this is an opportunity for me to learn endurance. And in learning that endurance, it's going to build character in my life. And that character is going to turn into hope, and that's going to work out because the Spirit of God is pouring love into my heart. Like, and so this whole thing is just this process that we enter into where we don't say, get rid of the suffering, let's make everything okay. But in the suffering, in the hard things, we begin to learn the beautiful lessons that we need to. James says it very similar, similarly, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces pay, uh, steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Like, this is the journey. That it, it doesn't come from denying that the world is broken. It doesn't come from filling in the whole picture. Um, it comes through acknowledging that, man, it's broken and it's hard, but I'm going to find some life in it. This week, uh, a friend gave me a, a book of letters from Henry, Henry, Henry Nowen, who's a um, spiritual writer and a Catholic and, and just like a really, really kind of deep sense of spirituality. And um, anyways, in this book of letters, he wrote one to Mr. Rogers, which you can imagine totally caught my attention. And, uh, and I thought after a hard Ecclesiastes passage, these folks could use a little Mr. Rogers at the end. So he's writing this to him. And what happens is Mr. Rogers was um, really discouraged because someone wrote this really mean um, uh, article about him. Which, like, can you imagine, you know, um, if you find yourself c criticizing Mr. Rogers, you've got to analyze your choices in life, I think. Um, but he's discouraged, and there's this article, and so he sends it to Henry Nowen, and Henry Nowen here is responding. He says, 
Dear Fred, I read the article you sent me and can very well understand how much you, that must have hurt you. It must be really painful to be confronted with a total misunderstanding of your mission and your spiritual intentions. It is these little persecutions within the church that hurt the most. I simply hope that you are not too surprised by them. They come and will keep coming precisely when you do something significant for the kingdom. It has always struck me that the real pain comes often from the people from whom we expected real support. It was Jesus' experience and the experience of the great visionaries of the church, and it continues to be the experience of, of many who are committed to Jesus. I don't think it makes much sense to argue with the writer of this article. He speaks from a very different plane and will not be open to your explanations. And, and this is what I love here. Some of the criticisms we simply have to suffer and see as invitations to enter deeper into the heart of Jesus. I think that is a profound statement in this letter. Sometimes when we're criticized, sometimes when things are coming at us, sometimes when things don't make sense, we have to simply accept those as sufferings and let that draw us deeper into the heart of Christ. I think that's literally what Paul and James are saying, that sometimes the things in life that are broken, our job is not fix them and let's get back so that we can show the world like, no, look, my faith is perfect, right? Look, church makes perfect sense, right? Look, Jesus is everything that, that like, uh, beyond all criticism and all that kind of stuff. We sometimes want to put the perfect picture up there, and he's saying, no, sometimes it's the suffering and the hard things, and it's the cracks, and it's the chips, and it's the imperfection that actually lets us get deeper into the heart of Jesus. There's a process that I think we surrender to, and we trust and grow more like God as we go about it. So, which painting is better? Um, I absolutely love and adore the picture on the right. It has brought a lot of joy into my family and will continue to. Um, this, this, this sweet little old lady, she's like describing like what happened. She said, yeah, I started painting and it just kind of got away from me, you know, and it's like <laughs> accurate, you know. Um, but which one is better, okay? Yes, the on the right, covered in paint, shiny, glossy, uh, you know, no, no deterioration there, but it's not a good painting. I'm sorry, Cecilia, I'm sorry. It's not a good painting. The one on the left, though, is actually, I would say, just in very, very theologically profound and accurate, which is this. It is a picture of Jesus in his humanity. That's what the original author was, uh, or painter was getting at, is like, it's a picture of Jesus. You can see, like, intention in his eyes. You can see the crown of thorns on his head. You can see him, um, you know, contemplating or whatever. And then the fact that it's all broken and chipped, and you can't see it clearly. You can tell what's, what's being got out there, but you can't see how it all fits together and where all the little pieces of his beard or whatever would fit in. Like, you can't see it all. And that's theologically profound because Jesus is the one that created this world, right, that we live in, created it to be good, created us to enjoy each other, created us to enjoy life with him and all this. And then as this world fell apart and broke, Jesus did not stand back and say, we've got to start over and, and whatever. No, he actually entered into the brokenness, right? And this picture of Jesus as he's about to be crucified that has deteriorated is actually theologically rich from the standpoint of Jesus entered into the brokenness and the decay of this world. He entered into the entropy of it all. He entered into the cracks and the flaws and the painting. And so there's so much that is just intriguing and beautiful in, in, in the idea that, man, my faith is kind of broken, you know? Like my, like, my faith is, like, pretty robust, like, pretty healthy. I've spent a lot of time, like, working on my spiritual life, but my, my faith is cracked and flawed, and, and I'm willing to bet that yours is, too, on some level, right? And ours is a church family, and, and, and what we do in terms of how we live our lives and how we represent ourselves to the community around us, chipped, cracked, flawed, um, but something, I believe, deeply compelling in the midst of it. So we don't try to cover it up. We don't try to pretend that everything's fine. 
um, we want to be on the journey that I think the preacher in Ecclesiastes has been inviting us onto from the beginning. A journey that's leading us to loosen our grip on all these things that we hold. At, at this point, we're just thinking, man, the preacher is just repetitive. Again and again, the same things. When are you going to stop repeating the same things? And I can imagine the preacher being there, well, when are you going to loosen your grip on these things that I keep bringing up again and again? Uh, we're holding so tightly. So let's loosen the grip. Let's allow ourselves to see Jesus. And we're going to close this time by entering into a time of uh, communion, the Lord's Supper.